Great to see all of you. I want to say hey to our folks in the AC as well, our folks who are tuning in from wherever. Uh, so grateful for what God is doing in this season. It's a great season already. We're seeing uh, God do a lot in the heart of our people going on mission, particularly in short-term trips. Uh, we, of course, have a team in Poland right now, have a team that left to go to Memphis this morning. We had a team that uh, went to Mexico City last weekend. And so it's just exciting to see all the many ways that you are serving. And, and I want to challenge you, if you're a part of our, our Johnson Ferry family, to consider going on one short-term trip a year. And maybe a short-term trip might be across the city or maybe a state or two away. Sometimes it's to somewhere literally across the world. But as a general rule, let's always have our passports ready and updated and just willing to go wherever the Lord leads us to go. And let's be praying for those who are leading this week. Uh, I'll be uh, getting on a plane this evening and joining our team in Poland uh, this week and look forward to preaching uh, later in the week to a citywide uh, evangelistic rally that we'll be doing in Poland. So I'd appreciate your prayers for that. And just excited to be a part of a church that takes the Great Commission uh, very seriously. Today we are in uh, Hebrews 13, as we are getting near the end of, of this series called The Race. Uh, we got three messages left, all right? So we're persevering and uh, we're gonna do today. And then next Sunday, uh, Bryant Wright is gonna come and he's gonna preach uh, in the first two hours. And then 11.30 next week, our students are gonna come back and do a homecoming concert from what they've been doing in Poland. So our 11.30 service will be a little different next, next week. Uh, and then I'll wrap it up. Uh, the following Sunday, and it's been a great study. I hope that you've been blessed by just going through this wonderful letter slash sermon to the Hebrews. Um, I want to think about a little bit of history today. I, how many of you have been to Rome? Anybody here been to Rome? Yeah, lots. Of, and I don't just mean like up in Georgia. I mean like the Rome, <laughs> the one that looks like a shoe on the other side of the world. All right, so uh, I. I have not. I'd, I'd love to. That's on a list of places that I definitely want to find a way to get to soon. And, and if you've been to Rome today and seen the history of Rome, you know that even it now is a shadow of what it uh, used to be. Because the Roman Empire, which spanned about 500-ish years, was the dominant empire for much of the globe for a very, very long time. In fact, one of the, the nicknames, if you will, of Rome was, it was the eternal city. The thought was, this is a city that will never die. Which is why they were shocked that on August the 24th, in the year 410 AD, a general, by the name of Alaric came in and he conquered the city of Rome. You can see a, a painting of that very, uh, what they often call a sack of the city. Alaric came in with the Visigoths and in just a matter of days, plundered the city of Rome. And after the fact, many were left thinking, what happened? How was it that the most mighty nation on the planet a place that we call the eternal city. How is it that these barbarians could come and conquer the city? Many theories were then generated. One of the key theories emerged was that this was the fault of the Christians. 
You see, in most of Rome's history, they had served pagan gods. You think about Roman mythology, Jupiter and the like. When Rome had worshipped pagan gods, everything was great. It was only after Christianity came on the scene and became the official religion of Rome that Rome became weak and lost its power. And so Christians who had enjoyed uh, a, a bit of safety, if you will, began to draw the ire of many of their peers. It was in the midst of the collapse of Rome that an intellectual powerhouse named Augustine began to write a book. Now, I don't know if you've heard of Augustine. You may know a lot about him. He, of course, was an intellectual giant, a bishop in the church, uh, also created some incredible grass that's grown in Florida, and uh, just kidding. St. <laughs> Augustine, yeah, anyways. But it, it, was, it was in response to these claims that it was the Christian's fault that he began to write a series of books that were later compiled to be called The City of God. I don't know if, if you've read The City of God or maybe have a copy of The City of God or maybe have learned a little bit about The City of God. It is Augustine's attempt to really do three things. First of all, he wants to counter any notion that it was because of Christianity that Rome fell. In fact, what he demonstrates is that it was the Christians who offered mercy and compassion to those who were hurting in the midst of the downfall of Rome. Secondly, he begins to trace the history of the pagan gods and goddesses in Rome and demonstrates that they offered no security or protection at all because of all the ways in which Rome had gone through difficulty in their past. But the third and the most enduring lesson that he's trying to draw out in the city of God is to say that in spite of those who could not believe this, all earthly powers, all earthly nations, all earthly cities, even if you call them eternal and everlasting, all of them are destined to fall and only the kingdom of God will last forever. So the city of God is the city in which God's people are its inhabitants. And that is the city that we live for, especially in light of suffering and persecution. And as we've studied throughout the book of Hebrews, this letter was written to people that were suffering for being Christians. We know the history is that they grew up Jewish and had come to see Jesus as their Messiah. And in so doing, signed up for a life of hardship. And as their family members would still go to the temple and still have animals sacrificed for them and still would keep the Sabbath and still would keep all these religious festivals, they were wondering, had we made a mistake? Why is our life so hard? In chapter 13 of Hebrews, the writer is encouraging them again and again and again that no matter how hard it may get, Stick with Jesus. Now, I think before we read the text, we hear that stick with Jesus no matter how hard it gets. And for us, let's be honest, that's mostly an intellectual exercise to imagine what it might be like to face difficulty because of our faith in Jesus. Now, who knows? Maybe a decade or two or three from now, if, if we're still here, it's a different situation. 
but we're trying to put ourselves in the shoes of those who were suffering because of their faith in Jesus and also getting the resolve in our own life to say, hey, would we stick with Jesus no matter what? So today we're talking about the city of God and, and I'm borrowing, yes, Augustine's book title, but it really comes from an image right here out of Hebrews chapter 13. And you'll see it in verse 14, but let's read verses seven through 14. And if you would, let's stand together. And this is the challenge that the author gives to his readers to stand strong. Verse 7 through 14. He begins with this. Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their way of life, imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be misled by varied and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, through which those who were so occupied were not benefited. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the body of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also suffered outside the gate that he might sanctify the people through his own blood. So then, let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here, we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. Father, if we're being completely honest, all of us are way more attracted to this temporary city than we are the city of God. And all of us have a temptation to fall into the patterns of this world instead of the kingdom of God. So Lord, no matter what we've come in here today with, I, I pray that God, our heart would be to seek the city that is to come. God, would you speak through your word in a way that only you can by your spirit? For we are listening. And we'll pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If y'all would, have a seat. Dan Allender wrote uh, a, a quote that I think is helpful when I think about the Hebrews. He said, uh, humility comes from humiliation, not the choice to be humble. In other words, yes, you can learn a lot by trying to be a humble person, and to some measure, I guess you can be humble. But for most people, it takes some form of humiliation to truly make you a humble person. The Hebrews are being humbled, humiliated. They feel like outcasts. They feel like the marginalized. Maybe these are people who once had those good jobs, but the jobs are not theirs any longer. Maybe they had a nice house, but the house is not theirs any longer. Their, their family and friends are, are going to prison for following Jesus. 
And though they don't want to admit it, I'm sure there's a part in all of their minds and they're thinking, is this really worth it? So the author of the Hebrews, who we don't know who he is from an earthly perspective, we know that God ultimately is the author of scripture. He's writing here to challenge them. And he gives some challenging words as they are to seek the city of God, to seek the city that is to come. And I'd like for us to think about that today as the people of Johnson Ferry. Are we, as individuals, are we as a church, are we seeking the city of God? So to use language that most of us are familiar with, if you're new today, this is gonna be new language for you. I'd like to think about our pursuit as a church, which is our, our mission, what's our mission? That we exist to help people find truth, belonging, and purpose in Jesus Christ. If that's, if that's our goal, that, that we think that truth, belonging, and purpose is only truly and sufficiently found in Jesus, how does that relate to us seeking this city? Or to put it another way, this kingdom of God. Now let's think today about truth, belonging, and purpose as it relates to this passage, verses 7 through 14. First, I want you to see this, that we are to seek a better truth, knowing Jesus is God's final word. A better truth, knowing Jesus is God's final word. Here we look up at verse 7 through 9. He says, remember those who led you, leaders, who did one primary thing. What was it? They spoke the word of God to you. Now, to speak the word of God may mean all of Scripture. That may be the gospel itself, the message of Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection that provides salvation for us, redemption for the world. But he says that as you go through these hard times, remember those leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Perhaps the assumption is that they're no longer alive. Maybe these are people that in a previous generation were leaders. Maybe he's thinking of of the men and women that are exemplified in Hebrews 11, this hall of faith. Maybe he's thinking of people to whom we don't know who they are, but they were influential to the people here in the first century hearing this for the first time. I don't know, but as a general rule, especially in hard times, remember those who spoke the word of God to you. I think we need to do the same thing. Be thankful for those who speak the word of God to you. Be they a pastor, a small group leader, someone in your life who spoke God's word to you. I know I'm so grateful for people who spoke the word of God into my life. I took Jesus serious for the first time when I was a senior in college. And I remember Terika and I, she was my girlfriend at the time, we, we started attending a church uh, in our last year of college, and, and the church was pastored by a wonderful Bible teacher. And I had not grown up with that kind of teaching. It was the first time I'd ever seen someone who on a Sunday morning just said, turn to this passage and everyone opened Bibles and he just started by looking at this verse and the next verse and he just kind of taught you what was in there. I didn't grow up with that kind of teaching. And I look back at how pivotal that was in my life, though I had no way of articulating it then, to see just the power of someone speaking God's truth, the truth of his son through his word into my life. We all need people like that, especially when things are hard. He says, remember those who spoke the word of God to you. And he says, consider the result of their way of life. And I love this phrase, imitate their faith. 
all human leaders, all men and women, even the men and women who love Jesus, even the men and women who are incredible Bible teachers and preachers, even they are fallible people. They don't follow Jesus in the most consistent ways, not, not nearly as much as they wish they did. I know as your pastor, I can say with complete transparency before you and the Lord that I have done nothing that to my knowledge would disqualify me from being your pastor. But I can think of a lot of examples in my life where I am not following Jesus in the way I would like to be following Jesus. How about you? All human leaders are fallible. All human leaders come and they go. Human leaders are born and they die. All human leaders come and go. But I love what he says in verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Yes, we're to remember our human leaders, but we ultimately look at Jesus. Now, to some, to some degree, this feels a little disjointed. Now, you're talking about remembering leaders, and all of a sudden, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. What he may be saying is that it's not, it's not the leader, him or herself. It, it's their faith, yes, but it's their faith in Jesus. It's the content of who they're following. That's where we stake our lives. That's why I talk about that in Jesus, we have a better truth. We know that Jesus is God's final word. Jesus does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. He does not change. He is always faithful. He is always consistent. He is always perfect. We always have to be careful that we don't turn Jesus into our image, but we're always going back to what the word of God says about who Jesus is. And throughout the history of the church, there's always been temptation to turn Jesus into, well, a Jesus that's made in our own image, that fits our own parameters of, of who we think God should be. If you look at the history of the church, you see a number of examples of heresies that have made their way throughout the church. Uh, one of the more prominent ones in the early church in the third century was Arianism. A guy by the name, last name of Arian, uh, basically taught that Jesus was incredible, the firstborn of all creation, endowed with powers and abilities, but he was not of the same essence as the Father. Now you might think, well now we're just kind of splitting hairs on theological things that I don't really understand, but let me tell you something, whatever or whoever that Jesus is, that is not the Jesus of the Bible. Jesus is not merely the, the first and the best of all of God's creation, no, Jesus is one with the Father, one with the Spirit, equally part of the divine triune Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus is God's final word. Back in Hebrews chapter one, it's interesting, this is how he begins the letter of Hebrews. So this says something about what's important to this author. Hebrews chapter one, verse one. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways. In other words, he's saying that look, God, God used to speak through all kind of different avenues, but in these last days, the days in which we live, he has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things through whom he also made the world. Now, for those of you who have followed Jesus for a long time, this may seem redundant, things that we talk about all the time, but for those of you who might be new to the faith, we need to always be reminded, we keep going back to Jesus. 
Everything centers on Jesus. In fact, when I teach people about how to study the Bible, even teach the Bible, I'll, I'll use this very simple diagram. You can see it here. To see that the focal point of truth is found in Jesus. If you just think about how God has spoken, it started with his audible word. God spoke the world into existence. As you keep reading, we see that God speaks through his law. He gives Israel, in particular, in the Old Covenant, the law. And then the prophets come, and the prophets' main job is not merely to predict the future, but it's to call people back to a life under the law of God. But all of it points to Jesus. He is the fulfillment of the law. He's the fulfillment of the truth of God. Who are the apostles? The apostles are those who follow Jesus. And remember Jesus said when the Holy Spirit comes, he will remind you of all the things that I have said. And then they wrote down what Jesus said. They inscripturated the word of God. What is the Bible, particularly when we think about the Old and New Covenant together? It, it is words pointing to Jesus. And the New Testament is the words of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus. And then when you think about the illumination of the Spirit, that's just the word that says when you sit down with your Bible and you, and you read it and you pray, God has a way of not, not stripping away the intended meeting, but he has a way of, of calling you to remind yourself of who this truth is in Jesus and what he wants you to do with his truth. And it all comes back to Jesus as our final word. We're a Jesus church, Amen. We believe truth, belonging, and purpose is found in Jesus. Verse 9, still thinking about truth, he says, Do not be misled by varied and strange teachings, for it's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, through which those who were so occupied were not benefited. I looked this up. I don't, I don't know what the varied and strange teachings were, and, and no one seems to. There, there are a lot of different theories about what strange and varied teachings they might have been tempted to believe. We do know that when he says that we're strengthened by grace, not by foods, he may be talking about that there were some teaching that you had to maybe eat certain things or not eat certain things, a, a certain form of asceticism, to withhold from certain things, that's what made you right with God. We don't know. Probably there was some syncretism of Judaism and Christianity that wasn't fully Judaism, wasn't fully Christianity, but they kind of brought them together in a way that was damaging, a varied and strange teaching that was pulling people away from what God had revealed about his son, Jesus Christ. Did you know that today there are plenty of varied and strange teachings that if we're not careful can pull us away from the truth through Jesus. I can think about a bunch. I think probably the most prominent in our country is this kind of uh, neo-prosperity gospel that is very popular in America today. And unfortunately, we're exporting it because it's becoming more and more popular in places like Africa and other places, and they're getting it largely from American preaching and teaching. And, and the prosperity gospel basically says that faithfulness to Christ is a means to material wealth. In other words, if, if you'll just be faithful to Jesus, he'll help you be wealthy and healthy. Now, 
is a tension, right? Because the Bible does say that we serve a God who gives good gifts to his children. We, we serve a God who does not lack anything. We serve a God who, who blesses. But how do you square the teaching that if you're faithful, you can expect a material blessing of God? How do you square that with the apostles, most of whom were martyred for their faithfulness to Jesus? How do you square that with a Jesus who died as one despised and ashamed from the world's point of view on some hill outside of Jerusalem that the world tried to quickly forget? How how do you square that with a number of our believers around the world who, like the Hebrews, are facing tremendous difficulty for following Jesus? What what is it? They're not faithful enough? You see how, how dangerous this is. Folks, if we have Jesus, we are already richly blessed, way beyond anything that we could ask, think, or deserve. And we do serve a God who blesses. When people are sick, I pray for God to heal. When people need resources, I pray that God would provide those resources. And God can, and often God does. But let's not be lulled into thinking that somehow if I'm just faithful to Jesus, then God turns into a a cosmic slot machine that dumps out all the money that I could want and more. Sometimes our great enemies are external, sometimes they're internal. Watch out for varied and strange teachings. Always stick with Jesus. He's God's final word. I love this quote, I don't know who said it, uh, but they they were talking about old Bibles. Like some of y'all got really old Bibles, like duct tape, I'm talking, you know, got some Alabama steel on there, keeping that thing together. I love this line though. It says, show me a Bible that's falling apart and I'll show you a life that's not. Isn't that good? Some of y'all just got new Bibles. You're like, I got an old one in the house. I got an old one. I promise. I got, I just got this. It's all shiny. I got it, yeah. Actually, I I love uh, Beth who leads our, runs our bookstore here at the church. She said, you know, it's really encouraging how many people come in our bookstore every week to buy a Bible. Uh, I think that's awesome. I just love people coming to buy a, a copy of God's, God's word. But Jesus, let's stick with him. He's our, he's our truth. Number two, let's talk about belonging. If we're seeking the city of God, we have a better belonging knowing God has established a new covenant people. Something is new on this side of the cross. Here we want to look at verses 10 through 12. He says in 10 and 11, we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Now, this is where he's going to make allusions as he has a number of times to the Old Testament. You can't fully understand Jesus in the way God wants us to if you don't also know the Old Testament. And here he's drawing on images from the Day of Atonement particularly the Day of Atonement as it was practiced when Israel was in the wilderness. Now, we've talked about this. You can go back uh, and look at our teachings on Hebrews uh, 8, 9, 10 to to understand more here. But he's making a point. He's thinking about the great benefits of those priests on the Day of Atonement. And you you remember what they would do. They would take a, a bull sacrifice the bull, they take the blood and put it on the altar and they go into the holy of holies 
to offer a sacrifice for the sins of all the people. And, and then they would take the carcass of the bull on that day of atonement, and they would take it outside the tabernacle, this temporary tent that was set up, to a place that was considered unholy, and the carcass there was often burned outside of the camp. Sometimes the priest was also called to eat the sacrifice. They would roast the animal and, and eat the animal. And, and what he's saying is that these priests had this incredible sense of belonging, if we could use our word, with God, because they did something on your behalf. They had a special place. You, you couldn't go into the Holy of Holies. They could. You couldn't eat the sacrifice. They could. But he's talking to people who feel marginalized, who feel like the world has forgotten them, who feel second place. And I love what he says in verse 10. Notice this, what he says to believers. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle. Who, who are those who serve the tabernacle? The priests, special men of God. Yet if you're a believer in Jesus, you have something that they don't have. You have an altar where you have a right to eat that they do not. You have Jesus Christ. Hebrews 3.14 says this, for we have become partakers of Christ if we keep the beginning of our commitment firm until the end. I love that word partakers. We share in Christ. We have Christ in our life. Can you see how powerful that would be to people who feel like choosing Jesus was a mistake or at least it feels like a mistake? He said, no, 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 if you have Jesus, you, you have something that the world doesn't have. You have a sense of belonging with the Father who, who through Christ has set up a new covenant. A covenant that says it's not about your religious heritage. It's not about if you were born Muslim or a Jew or an atheist or any other world religion. It's that through Christ, all are welcome. All our new creations, all can come in through Jesus. You have an altar that they don't have. And see, what he's doing here, he's flipping everything on his head. Everything's in reverse. Uh, I don't know if as a kid, maybe you read or watched the movies of Alice in Wonderland. Anybody remember Alice in Wonderland? Uh, well, these were written in the 1850s by Lewis Carroll, and he had one book called Through the Looking Glass. And when Alice would look in the looking glass, everything was in reverse. People would walk backwards. Everything was the opposite. Up was down, down was up. And, and to some degree, what he's saying is that because of Christ, everything is now reversed in the new covenant. He says in verse 12, therefore Jesus also suffered outside the gate that he might sanctify the people through his own blood. We know that Jesus Christ was not crucified in the city but outside the city on a hill called Golgotha, Calvary, at a place that other people considered unholy. It's a place where criminals go to die. It's where the scum of the earth had their life eradicated. And yet this was the place. Jesus died like the carcass of a bull outside of the camp. But through his blood, we are cleansed. We are made right. And you can see how maybe in the time of the Hebrews, it was those who were still Jewish had not yet seen Jesus as the Messiah. That's what I mean by Jewish. 
They, they, they were thinking that these Christians made a massive mistake. And yet what the author is saying is that the opposite is true. The outsiders are in. And those who thought they were on the inside are now out. You have a belonging with Jesus because you are part of his new covenant. Did you know that you have a belonging with Jesus? If you've given your life to him. You have an altar by which the rest of the world doesn't have because of Jesus. We talked about truth, belonging. Let's end with purpose. Number three, what do we have? We have a better purpose knowing that God uses our suffering to spread his name. Now, I'll just be honest, I don't like that point. I mean, I know I came up with it, but I don't like it. I wish it said that we had a better purpose knowing that our, our wealth would spread his name. Our charisma would spread his name. Our influence would spread his name. But no, as we go back to the Old New Testament again and again, it's actually through our suffering that his name is spread. Think about verse 13 and 14, how this would have been encouraging to these Jewish Christians listening to Hebrews. So then, let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. Bearing his reproach. What's that mean to bear his reproach? There's a lot of New Testament examples. Moses is one that's alluded to in Hebrews 11, of course, from the Old Testament, who, who bore the reproach of Christ. Another one I can think about uh, is the Apostle Paul. Now, Paul, as many of you know, was Saul of Tarsus. His life was radically changed when he saw the resurrected Christ. I don't know about you, but I tend to trust people who rise from the dead, as did Paul. And, and Jesus changed his life. And as you know from the Bible, Paul's life didn't get easier when he followed Jesus. In many respects, it got harder. Here's a man who, who in the eyes of the world was doing quite well. Credentialed, influential, a man of means. And he's willing to just throw all that away for this, this Jesus fairy tale. And he would be imprisoned and beaten left for dead. Listen to Paul's own words in 2 Timothy 1 as he connects his own suffering to his purpose to share the gospel. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, we'll start in verse 8. He says this to Timothy. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, Interesting, by the way, he doesn't consider himself a prisoner of Rome. He considers himself a prisoner of Jesus. But join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, to abolish death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed, this is his ministry, a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. 
For this reason, I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed. Now, just pause there. His ministry caused him to suffer, but he did not, call, he not, he did not consider that a cause of shame. Why? He keeps going. For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to protect what I have entrusted to him until that day. Now, uh, there's so much I could comment on there, maybe just a, a few comments to think about that text. We often think about the things that God entrusts to us, money, time, talents. You know, we're stewards of that which God has entrusted to us. It's interesting that Paul here says, I'm entrusting things to God. I, I think that like a vault, God can keep what I've entrusted to him until that day. You say, what are those things? Well, in this passage, three come to mind for Paul. There were his life, his ministry, and thirdly, people. He could entrust a life, even if it was a life of suffering, because God would keep him until that day. He could entrust his ministry. He says, I was appointed as apostle, a, a teacher, a proclaimer of the word of God. I'm going to entrust all that to the Lord. And thirdly, people, converts, people that he had the privilege of leading to faith in Jesus. I'm entrusting them to you until that day for you to keep them, Lord. Did you know that you can do the same thing? Again, I don't know what's coming down the pike in our world. I know that we're all kind of reading the, the tea leaves and look at the clouds on the horizon and it doesn't look good. But kingdoms come and kingdoms go, but we're not seeking the city. We're seeking the city of God. That's what he says in verse 14. For here we don't have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. So this is my question for you, Johnson Ferry. What city am I living for? Really? When you think about your money, your free time, what you put in front of your eyes, how you handle relationships, whether or not you're sharing the gospel or not, we could go down the list. What does it reveal about you? Does it reveal that you're actually living for this city, the city of this world? Or are you seeking the city that is to come? That's how we stay strong until the end. I believe that God wants to speak to you this morning. I believe that he has spoken to many of you. I don't know what it is that he's asking you to do, but let's just talk to him about it. How about in both rooms right now? Could y'all just bow your heads, close your eyes? And I'm going to give you just a few seconds. Just talk to your Heavenly Father about whatever it is He wants to say to you after hearing this text. So why don't you talk to Him now?
Father, I just pray that you would forgive all of us for the many ways that we attach our hearts and our lives to things that are temporary, things that are fleeting. Lord, help us to seek the city that is to come. Lord God, would you be the center of our heart and would we find that it's only in you that we truly find truth, we truly find belonging, we truly find purpose. Lord, I pray that you'd speak to everyone here today. Remind us of the faithful promises that you've given to us, Father. Remind us that it's only on Christ, the solid rock of Christ that we stand, that we find our stability in life. We love you, Father. We thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for how you change lives. And we'll pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.